Who knows the difference between listening slowly and listening fast? It's what you need to do by pretending that I'm still speaking at the same speed as normal, but you're absorbing it a lot faster. In actual fact, I'll be speaking today a lot faster than normal, and you'll be finding it difficult to absorb what I'm saying, but I need you to understand because I'm going to tell you a story this morning that is going to blow your socks off, but I'm going to tell it through scripture. So I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture. Who thinks that reading scripture is a good thing? Yes. Good. And I'm going to be continuing the message I started last week about the story of the conversion of Saul, the fire-breathing church member killing Saul, to the builder of the modern church, if you like, Paul the Apostle. Who remembers what I talked about last week? A few of you, okay. The rest of you, not so much. So last week I left you with... Saul determined to destroy the church and the disciples, including some crazy people like this Philip character, equally determined not to let that happen. We discussed, how many points did we discuss? No, it was four. (laughs) But I only told you two. The two I talked about were the attitude and actions that we can expect from non-believers. What did we decide about that? That it was totally unimportant. It's set homework. The second one was that it highlights the attitudes and actions that we as believers should have, and we determined that that was very important. Very good. So today I'm going to go through the last, the last of the two points. Uh, the third of which, or the first of the second two, <laughs> is that we, we need to see that salvation is an experience, not just mental consent. It's not just an idea. It's not just a logical conclusion. It's actually an experience that needs to be felt. And the fourth one is to demonstrate that salvation is available for everybody. So let's pray before we start. Lord, I thank you that your word this morning is going to change hearts, encourage people, Enable us to actually do what you have called us to do by using the examples of the early church. We can actually not just emulate what they've done, but do more and greater things. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at the idea of salvation as an experience in this story. Uh, It's actually graphically displayed just by talking about two people. Those two people's names are Simon, and the other one is called Saul. So let's, let's start. Acts chapter 8, verse 9. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years. Now there is the city of Samaria that we're talking about. He amazed the people of Samaria and claimed to be somebody great. Anybody know anyone like that? Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believe Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon, Simon the sorcerer himself, believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went and was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. 
See, Simon had faith and was baptized, but in what he was, his faith was in what he was seeing. He, he was in awe. He was amazed by the miracles and signs that he was seeing. Further on in Acts, we see, we see that the apostles Peter and John came along. And in verse 18, it says, When Simon saw that the Spirit was given, when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking that God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me. Simon exclaimed that these terrible things you've said won't happen to me. Can you see a problem in Simon's prayer there? Simon acknowledged that the power that Peter and John had came from Jesus Christ, but refused to believe that to get that same power, he had to let go of his own. He had to lay down his life, humble himself, and accept that it wasn't his power, it was Jesus' power. And so let's, let's look at the second person, this, this Saul character. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, uh, here's his um, character reference. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. Yay, Saul. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. The way was how they actually referred to this new upstart religion that Jesus had started. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Now notice it's a lowercase l for Lord there. So this is Saul being careful. This, this great... Light has appeared, he's been knocked to the ground, and it's like, okay, whoever's done this could be important, I'd better stay on his good side. So he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. And he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. See, Simon was impressed by what he could see. Paul couldn't see anything. Simon sought to increase his power, but Saul, but Saul or Paul as he became, was rendered completely powerless. And as we go on, we find out there was a, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the, the Lord spoke to him in a vision and told him to actually go to Paul and make him, give him back his sight. Now, th this, this is an interesting twist because Paul thought that his destiny was in Jesus' hands. And yet Jesus played another card by putting his destiny in the obedience of another person, this believer, Ananias. But the funny thing is that Ananias knew about Saul. And God told him to go and speak to Saul anyway. So 
He complained bitterly about who, who wouldn't? You know, this, this guy who's been persecuting you, who in, in your presence, he's like to throw you in chains. I want you to go and talk to him. And then Ananias says, No. And so in verse 15, the Lord says, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterwards, he ate some food, regained his strength and stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed, strangely enough. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation amongst Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? So we can see a comparison here. Simon was attracted by what he saw the followers of Jesus do in terms of miracles and signs, but he saw it as a, mo- as a way to boost his own personal power. He had his own plans and purposes, and he could see this, this impartation of the Holy Spirit could do great things for his, uh, his sideshow. He could be Simon the Sorcerer, plus you can have the Holy Spirit in, in, in big letters above his tent. And so he didn't catch on that the key to the power that the disciples showed was their relationship with Jesus Christ and the fact that they regarded him as their Lord and their Savior. Saul, on the other hand, already knew about Jesus. And he was full on. He wanted to get as close to Jesus as possible so that he could kill people. So he had the the totally wrong idea, but he had an encounter with Jesus that turned his world upside down. His beliefs are destroyed. His self-described holiness is shattered and he's left blind and powerless. And the change in Saul is reflected in verse 11 where Jesus says to Ananias in his vision, he is praying to me right now see Saul experienced something that changed his heart even blind starving thirsty sitting in Damascus he wasn't trying to work out a way to turn this situation to his advantage he was praying to Jesus he had actually had a true conversion see salvation is not just a good idea it's not a mental assent to the truth it's something we must experience as a radical change in our heart, as well as in our head. Does that make sense? Salvation is experienced. The second point is salvation is for everyone. Who who sort of thinks that's a given? No? Who believes salvation isn't for everyone? Oh, you're just being lazy, aren't you? (laughs) Okay, so... It's, interesting. it's very easy to see Saul or Paul's salvation as the main event in this story. But the problem with that is it reduces it to an, an example, which be, it could be very encouraging, but also extremely depressing. Because you can look at the event and you can say, isn't it fabulous? God can use absolutely anyone, the most violent and vitriolic opponents to the gospel, to actually build his kingdom. Woo, isn't that good? But then you ask yourself, how many people do I know who in positions of power and have had a, a, an experience like that and have suddenly turned around and said, yep, 
I'm now following Christ. Who, know, who, who knows a politician, a famous person, somebody with influence in this world today who, who's done that in the last couple of years? No. Who knows anybody who's had that sort of turnaround in their lives that has attracted public attention, has, has divided opinion like that? Anybody? No. So in a way it can be very depressing. Here we've got an example of Paul that's a very powerful example in the Bible, but it doesn't relate to our, our everyday life. In fact, it's sort of depressing. It happened to Paul, but it hasn't happened to anyone since then. What sort of example is that? See, luckily for us, Paul's Damascus experience is actually just a teaser for a much bigger story that Paul is about to play a part in. Let's look at what's been happening in this story in the background while we've been consumed with Saul and his anti-church activities. Last week we read in Acts 8, chapter 1, that a great wave of persecution began the day that Stephen was martyred, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem and all the believers except the apostles. Sorry, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. So here we have an unrelated, a seemingly unrelated incident that Saul was attending, but it started something in the, of, of persecution throughout the church, and people were spread out. And it says in verse 5, Philip, for example, here it's him again, it's Philip. He went to the city of Samaria and told people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. And many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. And it's interesting because the Gospels now moved from Jewish territory into Samaria, where the people were part Jew and part Gentile. They were, they were half-breeds. And, th and this was actually a big deal because in Judea, in, around Jerusalem, they hated the Samarians because they were half-breeds. What had actually happened was that the Assyrians had come and invaded um, Israel, and 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and the Assyrians had actually taken them out of the country, and they had intermingled with other races and other, other, other beliefs, and then moved back to Samaria, and they had their own temple. They still believed in God. They still followed um, the ways of the Jews, but they were mixed. And so the Jews hated them, wouldn't even talk to them. We know the story of, of Jesus and the woman at the well. But the thing was that that was actually returned in kind. The Sumerians thought the Jews were stuck-up bastards and they refused to have anything to do with them as well. So it wasn't just one way. There was an antagonism between the two. And so, so Philip has gone out to these half-breeds and he's suddenly preaching the gospel and getting people saved. And so what happens next? Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they were angry. No, it doesn't say that. It says they sent Peter and John. You sort of think, okay, that's nice. And it says as soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. Why did Peter and John do that? Couldn't Philip have done that? He was quite capable. Why did they have to come all the way from Jerusalem just to say, okay, you guys can now have the Holy Spirit? God had a plan. 
See, God in his grace had built a bridge between these two cultures through Philip. And he'd made them believers in Christ, one church. But to make sure that bridge stayed open, he had to send somebody from Jerusalem into Samaria to actually bridge the gap between the two churches so that the Samarian church didn't start off separate from the church in Jerusalem and be, and be divided. Because even though they, they believed in the same God, they still had this cultural difference. And so Peter, Peter and John went to actually say to the Samarians, okay, we're from the church in Jerusalem. We, we've just come to say we love you guys and we have no issue in actually bringing the Holy Spirit with us into your church as well. And they were, they were, so, they were so excited about this. If we read on, it says, uh, being Peter and John, of course, they took this opportunity to cement their relationships. It says, on the way home, after testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, this is verse 25, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. They just couldn't help themselves because they recognized the value of unity in the church. True disciples always come with a message to unite the church, not to fragment it. So the Jews are being saved. The semi-Jews are being saved. Who's next? The Gentiles. Okay, so this is, surely this is where Paul comes in because he's the hero of the story, right? And we, we, we read earlier, do you remember that bit that was highlighted? It says that God was going to use him to reach the Gentiles and the kings. So this must be about Paul. No. See, God started the next phase of the plan while Saul was still killing people in the church. Because in the very next verse, verse 26, we see that it's, it's Philip again. He jumps all sorts of geographical and cultural boundaries to baptise the treasurer of the queen of Ethiopia. In verse 26, it says, As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, Go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Candake, uh, I guess, the queen of Ethiopia. Strange name. And... At the end of that encounter, it says in verse 38, he ordered the carriage to stop and they went down into the water and Philip baptised him. Now let me tell you, the Ethiopians were definitely Gentiles. So Paul or Saul is still killing Christians at this point and Philip's already reaching out to places he's never, he's never going to visit. And then in Acts chapter 10, we have the story of Peter who overcame his resistance to things he considered unholy to baptise Cornelius a Roman centurion and his whole family. Let's actually read what happens there. Are we getting a picture here? Am I, am I leading you all up the garden path or are you getting the feeling that something's coming together? Okay. <laughs> We're in the holding pattern at the moment. We are going to land. Acts chapter 10, verse 44. Peter has gone to Cornelius, he's preached to his family and the Holy Spirit's fallen on them. And it says here, even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. 
And then Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did? Of course, nobody said anything. So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. See, once again, God has built a bridge between one culture and another culture. Previously unreached people are now being reached by the gospel message. And God now goes again to great lengths to ensure that the new converts are connected to the existing church and not separated by cultural differences. Peter has to go back to Jerusalem to actually argue his case back in the Jerusalem church this time. And in Acts chapter 11 verse 15, he's talking to them about what had happened. And he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gifts he gave us when we believed, who am I to stand in God's way? When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. Can you see the importance that God is putting on not just getting new people saved, not just starting new churches, but making sure that they are all connected together. The representatives of the initial church in Jerusalem who are going out to these places and making sure that there is a connection which is solid, which is godly and which is whole to make sure that salvation is for everyone and everybody knows that salvation is for everyone. So what about Paul? Notice that after his miraculous conversion, he preached enthusiastically about the Lord Jesus Christ, but only to the Jews. Once they had been irritated to the point of murdering Paul, he was shipped off to Tarsus to stay out of trouble. We know that he also spent time in Arabia, and he doesn't re-enter the picture until God has laid the groundwork for the growth of the Gentile church. So we don't see Paul again until Acts chapter 11, verse 25. And it says, Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. And it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. So you see, salvation is available to everyone, but it's about the plan and not the man. God has a plan that we can be all involved in. He doesn't single out individuals as being more important. Paul was in the right place at the right time and God used him as part of a plan that he'd already laid the groundwork with. Peter and John and Philip had already gone before him and done all the important stuff. They'd built the bridges, they'd connected people and they had actually made it possible for Saul to do what he did in going out and planting churches all around that part of the world. So Paul was important in God's plan, but not because his conversion changed a church killer into a church builder, but because he was uniquely positioned to reach out to the latest converts, the Gentiles. Does anybody know what a Gentile is, by the way? It's just a word that the Jews use for anybody who's not a Jew. I thought it meant that we were gentle. And I'd like to keep believing that that's the case. So Peter, John and Philip and others like them laid out the important groundwork. They reached out to the Samaritans, not Paul. 
They reached out to the Gentiles, not Paul. They ensured, ensured that the church was not split because of the changes in it, not Paul. Paul was not a natural. I think we look at Paul and sort of think, well, he was uniquely positioned to be powerful in what he did. But he wasn't. He had to be trained. He had to be tested. He was put on the shelf for three years to develop his character. God didn't just rush him into the field. He had to go through all the things that all of us go through when we get saved. And so he was actually placed to do the most good in a plan that involved hundreds of other people doing daily things. Because you see, I love this idea that they're going to talk about heroes in kids' church. Because you see, the Bible is full of heroes. But the true heroes of the, Christ, of the Christian faith are the people who are willing to lay the groundwork. The people who are willing to be faithful when no one's watching. People willing to reach out to the lost. People willing to take risks. People willing to serve. People willing to pray. People willing to obey God when it seems illogical. People willing to weather the storms of life. People whose faith is not shaken by circumstance. People like you. See, we don't have to be Paul. It's great to look at Paul and say, what an awesome act of God it was to start what he started. And what a great man Paul was to go and start all of those churches. But he didn't do it alone. He wasn't the pinnacle of God's plan. He was actually just placed in an area where God had actually done a huge amount of groundwork before Paul even arrived on the scene. That groundwork, that building of the kingdom, is done by us. We are the heroes that God puts in place. I mean, those kids' church teachers are heroes. They, they want to teach people their kids to be heroes in obedience. I mean, it takes a hero to try and teach that. <laughs> I think we should be praying for them night and day. But we need to actually take heart from the fact that this is, this is a great story, but if you dig into it, it's not about Paul. It's about the people behind Paul. It's about the people who went to Samaria. It's about the people who went to Cornelius' house. It's about Cornelius and his family. It doesn't tell us much about his family after that. But they're the heroes. They're, they're the ones who started the groundswell. This, this is us. Every day we, we go into our prayer closet and pray. Every time we read our Bibles, every time we turn up at church, every time we give, every time we, we help out with the women's shelter, every time we, we go to Fiji and build houses, every time we, we speak to someone in the street, every time we show an act of kindness, every time we help somebody else, we are building the kingdom of God. We are building a framework and a foundation for God to move. Now, sometimes he moves with people that we look at and think, wow, I couldn't do that. What we need to realize is they couldn't do that unless it was for us. So I want you to be encouraged. You are a hero. God has placed you in a position, a unique position, for you to use those hero qualities that he's put inside of you. Never doubt yourself. Never think that you're not enough, that you're not good enough. 
that you can't do what God's asking you. Because you can. Because his spirit lives in you. Let's stand. Sometimes, in fact, probably most of the time in life, especially when you're not in church being preached at and told you're a hero, we wander through life not feeling terribly heroic at all. Often at the end of a long day, possibly especially Mondays, we often feel least holy. After Sunday where we've worshipped God, we've heard the word of God, we've built ourselves up, we've filled ourselves with the spirit of God in preparation for the week. Often Monday can fill us so full of holes it feels that everything's leaked out. We have trouble remembering what was preached. Never mind the fact that we were the star of what was said. That God's word lives in us and enables us to do things, that God has actually made us part of his plan, can be easily forgotten. So I just want you to encourage, not yourself, but the person next to you. I want you to turn to them and tell, tell them they're a hero. Now, now tell them like you mean it, come on. Okay, now I don't want you to do anything embarrassing to the person next to you, I don't know how well you know them, but I want you to fix them in your mind right now, because rather than just call them a hero, I want you to spend some time this week praying for that person next to you, encouraging them in your prayers. You can even ring them up or SMS them and let them know that you're praying for them. Because they're, they're a hero. And sometimes we need to be reminded. So Lord, I, I pray right now with everybody here for that person standing next to you that they are reminded constantly this week that God has placed something absolutely incredible inside of them. That every conversation they have, every interaction with another person is an opportunity to be a hero for God. That all we have to do is ask. All we have to do is have the faith that as we step out, God steps out with us. And so Lord, we pray for them all this week, every day, that they won't forget that they are a hero that opportunities will come up for them to show heroism and they will step up. They will do the small things, the big things, whatever God asks to keep building his kingdom. Lord, we thank you for heroes. We thank you that we stand amongst them. 
Jesus' name. Amen. Before you sit, you may not have a relationship with Jesus. You may be a bit like Simon the Sorcerer. No, I won't, I won't put that on you. But you may not recognize, have recognised up until this point the importance of actually having a relationship with Jesus Christ. To access the power that God has for us. He says, you must come to me through the Son. My Son, Jesus. And we can do that by actually praying a prayer to actually invite Jesus into our hearts, to actually acknowledge that he is our Lord, he is the only way to our Father, and that we want to walk with him from this moment forward in our lives. It opens a door for us to start a walk with Jesus Christ, enables us to be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. You may never have taken that step this morning, or you may have taken it and realised that you've walked away from that destiny. And so if, if that's you, can I ask everybody just to bow their heads and close their eyes? And if that's you this morning, while every head's bowed, every eye closed, can you just raise your hand so that I can see it? And I would love to pray a prayer with you to invite Jesus into your heart, to begin a walk with him as a child of God. I ask you to open your eyes. Can we, can we just pray that prayer together anyway? I think it's great to remind ourselves that we are children of God. So can you pray after me? Lord God, I commit my life to Jesus Christ from this moment on. I want to be regarded as a precious child of the Most High God. I reject the devil. I put the world behind me and I fix my eyes on Jesus Christ. Thank you for your saving grace. Amen.